Hey, uh, before we get going, I just want to thank our sponsor this week, the London Review of Books. It is one of the only publications that I receive in print. I just enjoy reading it that way. And you will enjoy it too if you subscribe for 86% off the cost of a subscription by going to lrb.me slash longform. You'll get six issues for just $6. Again, lrb.me slash longform. Hello, and thanks for joining us for a new episode of the Longform Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Aaron Lammer. Our third co-host, Max, is off this week. Hey, Aaron. I don't know what to do right now. Without Max here, it's all a blank slate. Max keeps it together, so let's just, <laughs> we'll just muddle through. Let's, let's just keep this utilitarian. Who is on the show this week? <laughs> this week, I spoke to Jessica Bruder, who a lot of you will know because she authored the book Nomadland, which became the film Nomadland, which, among other things, won Best Picture at the Oscars this year. She, for that book, spent years following a group of Americans who were sort of victims of economic forces and are living on the road and working seasonal jobs, including through a program at Amazon called Camper Force, which comes up in this interview. And she really immersed herself in their lives, including living at different times in her own van up close with them. And she's, in addition to that, had a long and fascinating career as a journalist, including stints at the New York Times and the Oregonian, lots of magazine writing. And she's a real master of the kind of reporting that's on display in Nomadland, which I highly encourage people to read, even if they've seen the movie. And it was great to talk to her. That sounds very interesting. I have not seen the movie, so I'm, I'm going to use this as an excuse to uh, catch up on the uh, entire media history of this uh, story. We are brought to you, as always, by um, MailChimp. Wow. Evan, it shows you uh, <laughs> it shows you how incapable I am doing this now with Max. I, I, for a minute, went, who, who is the long-term sponsor of this show? It's MailChimp. They make it easy to send an email newsletter. They integrate with all the services that you're already using, namely email, email being the service that everyone's using. Thanks to MailChimp, they make this whole show possible. Here's Evan with Jessica Bruder. Jess, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for coming. When I emailed you to see if you'd come on the show, you replied to say that you were, quote unquote, out in the van reporting. And people who have read Nomadland will know that you have a van that you live in off and on as part of your reporting. That was like the best response that I could have gotten from you. Uh, it made me wonder, is the van a central part of your reporting now? I would love for it to be. I figured it wouldn't end up being a central part of my reporting. But now I've realized as somebody who really likes to do immersion, the idea that you can show up somewhere self-contained and then not go away. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a whole new level of becoming part of the furniture. Uh, when I was working with Harper's, my, my editor there, James Marcus, would tease me that it was the perfect narrative vehicle and I would give him a lot of shit for like the dad joke, but <laughs> I kind of think he's right. Or at least I, I want it to be so enough that I'm going to try. I love immersive reporting. Some of my favorite stories are along those lines. And so I love the book and I love your work. And I wanted to start back before you were doing immersive reporting and sort of how you arrived at this point. I read that you grew up in New Jersey and I'm curious what your parents did and what the younger you, what your ambitions were, you know, writing wise. Sure. So my parents split up when I was three. When they met, my mom was working in a bank and my dad was working in a travel agency. And I think they were both going to school at night. Uh, my mom ended up being an early childhood expert, hmm. which is pretty cool to have as a parent. I mean, she would take us on magical mystery tours, which were wonderfully kind of horrible road trips in New Jersey to locations that most people wouldn't think were really good for tourists. We read this zine, this horribly edited zine called Weird New Jersey that I'm still obsessed with. Huh. And we went to weird places and I loved it. And I, I think it was an influence that I didn't even consider until recently is that I think I'm still going on magical mystery tours. Yeah. 
What was there? Can you remember an example of a particularly weird New Jersey place? A really depressing zoo with a very sad bear. Huh. A very sad bear. It was a zoo that you wouldn't want to go to. But but then, you know, we'd, we'd go to try to find the Jersey Devil and the Pine Barrens or go to Cape May. It, it wasn't all super kooky. But just heading out on the road, having no idea where she was taking us. She would sing the, the Beatles song, Magical Mystery Tour, and we would line up at the door, hop in her Nissan hatchback, and just go. And yeah, I think I still feel that kind of excitement when I'm setting out on a story. It's pretty dorky, but uh, it's true. What was your sort of actual entry point into journalism? I was just doing some Nexus work. And in the early 2000s, you wrote a truly remarkable number of stories for the New York Times. So this was really weird. When I went to college, my advisor somehow convinced them to fund me for a year of post-thesis research in air quotes in South Africa. So suddenly, as kind of a lit theory, poetry, literary magazine editing nerd, I'm just out there running around in Johannesburg by myself learning lots of new things about uh, writing under apartheid and how people were coping with censorship. And that was your thesis? That was my thesis, but I hadn't been able to actually go to South Africa. So now I could go. I had nothing to do with the new material, but I felt so engaged and just the problem solving on the fly sort of thing that you find yourself doing when you're out in the field. And that's when I should have figured out I wanted to be a journalist and failed miserably at doing that and (laughs) came back to New York and took a job in publishing. I had been the uh, intern to Arthur Levine, who brought Harry Potter to the U.S. So I was working at Scholastic, manuscripts for short stories, for picture books, for for fiction. And then 9-11 happened. And I was watering plants in my window when I saw the second plane hit. And I feel like for so many people, that was this inflection point, this moment where they kind of felt emotionally defibrillated. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was like a hard reset in some ways. And I'd started hanging out with some journalists who are mostly music critics and, and that ilk. And realizing that I just wasn't feeling it in publishing. It was very seniority based. I felt like I'm enthusiastic and kind of want to put my all into everything, but that didn't really make a difference. It was kind of like, how long could I sit at the desk uh, rather than what I did there? At least that's how I felt at the time. So I started going to grad school part-time. I was afraid to quit my day job. And the first person I met was Dale Maharich, who's my best friend now. And working with him was incredible. And I got really into it. I started doing legwork for the New York Times for the cop shop. Shyla Dewan came in and talked to our class and said that J school stringers really suck, but they needed some help, but we really suck. And I was like, I was really shy at the time, but I made myself talk to her after class. And I was like, if I suck, you don't have to let me keep doing it, but I'd love to try. So I kind of went from Harry Potter to like corpses floating off of City Island pretty quickly. And that was where it started. And I just remember it was really hard. Somebody got beheaded in Iraq and I had to go to the scene and talk to neighbors. And it was the same day I'd been talking to somebody who was in a drop-in center and had been shooting a heroin cut with meat tenderizer and had craters all over his arms and Mm. was trying to bounce back. So it was the hardest stuff I'd ever done, but I got really obsessed with trying to do it well and just thinking that this kind of learning selfishly was something I wanted to keep in my life. So did you then get a full-time job at the Times, or were you always just stringing for them? So it's funny, the stringing stuff you wouldn't even see in Nexus, because this was before Jason Blair, this was before the italicized reporting contributed stuff at the bottom. So I'm a ghost in a lot of stories. Uh But then I began going down to Trenton twice a week, Trenton, New Jersey, for the legislative sessions, and they were shorthanded. There used to be a whole New Jersey section, and they would try to compete with the metro section. They were scrappy as hell. And suddenly I was getting bylines down there and they were letting me do front page stuff. And that I think is where I got my appetite for freelancing pitching because they just said, you know, fire away. So I did. You were doing all this work for the Times and then I know you went and you were on staff at the Oregonian. And again, it seemed like you were doing just a really wide diversity of pieces. And I'm interested in sort of 
how you were evolving as a reporter at that time and, and whether sure. that was your ambition, you were meeting it or you were sort of looking around and saying like, I want something more than this reporting. Actually, right after finishing the J school stuff and a lot of time stuff, I was at the Observer. Oh, right. Yeah. But when I got hired, I was kind of worried to decide that women covering politics was kind of a no-go zone there. And I ended up getting hired to write the engagements column. Get like which, wedding engagements? Like wedding uh-huh. engagements. And uh, it really, I, I needed the job, but I just told myself like my favorite writers could write about a piece of cardboard and make it interesting. I've been reading a lot of Susan Arlene and thinking like, okay, what would Susan do? And the funny thing was I got in and I, I pitched my way out of it. I never wrote a single wedding column. Oh, you just showed up and said, actually, I have another idea. Before I do the first wedding story, I want to do this. I kept flooding them with ideas and not with ideas for wedding columns. <laughs> kind of quirky features, but also politics because they really were shorthanded there. And I'd been covering politics in Jersey for the Times. I was the only Times person there when Governor McGreevy resigned. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been doing a lot of stuff that, that wasn't wedding coverage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I kind of wiggled out of that. It sounds like maybe the engagements coverage may have been a little neglected, though. I know. It probably suffered. There are a <laughs> lot of couples whose nuptials went under-acknowledged, and I should apologize to them now. <laughs> so then you went from that job to going out west. Yeah, I mean, I, I ended up kind of randomly doing a book on Burning Man. I was approached about that and, you know, interviewed more than 100 people. I think my favorite part was talking to the townspeople and just how they reacted to the circus coming to town each year, trying to get people not to take baths in their sinks, selling them propane. So it was it was narrative. It was quite an experience. And when I was finishing up that project, I'd been talking to the Oregonian because I'd read a bunch of their long news features, including like The Boy Without a Face. And to me, it seemed like the secret narrative training ground for for journalists where you know, they had Spanish lessons for free in the newsroom. Jack Hart was there as a narrative coach. He had a trash bin with a inverted pyramid on it, as in like, you can put that right here. Um, <laughs> I think what I didn't realize then was that I was kind of coming in at the tail end of that for the paper, because I, I wanted to be in a place where I would be getting regular assignments and just hitting it really hard every day, but where I also had opportunities to learn about going long. And those opportunities were getting fewer and farther between there, or just the paper yeah. the resources were drying up? The resources were thinning out. I remember when I left, somebody said, you might be the last person leaving by choice. And yeah, I mean, a, a lot of those things went away. And it was great to be there. You know, we were covering cops, courts, and crime in the county that Tanya Harding was from. And it was some intense, intense stuff. A lot of meth-related crime. Literally, there was a custody battle over a deer that Newsweek ended up coming out to cover after we (laughs) did a fair amount on it. The national reporter parachuting in for the deer custody story. Oh, yeah. A couple national reporters parachuted in for that. You know, battles over... Faith healers who were letting their kids die because they didn't want to use modern medicine and claiming religious liberty. So there was a ton of really interesting stuff, but it, it was kind of drinking from that fire hose and also just doing a lot of really, really dark crime. Hey, I'm going to pause things to give you a word from our sponsor this week, the London Review of Books, which offers unrivaled coverage, not only of literature and politics, but also art, history, science, and culture. As Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, the LRB provides space for some of the world's best writers to explore their subjects in absorbing and exhilarating detail. If you like the kind of writers who come on the show, you're going to like the London Review of Books. The new issue I'm looking at has uh, James Meek on wind turbines, Adam Tooze on Paul Krugman, Joanne O'Leary on Emily Dickinson, and there's also a podcast on that. There's a lot of stuff to enjoy, and you can get it for 86% off if you subscribe now at lrb.me longform. You'll get six issues for just $6. Again, 
lrb.me slash longform for 86% off the cost of a subscription. Thanks to the London Review of Books. I don't know if these are are themes that you would pull out of your writing, but when I was just reading a lot of your writing together in one go, there are these big themes that pop out. One of them is sort of the way that the new economy kind of grinds people up or puts them under constant surveillance or narrows their lives. And I was curious where you think that comes from for you. And was that something you were seeing on a day-to-day basis in your reporting when you were doing daily reporting? Well, I was when I came back to New York, not in daily reporting so much. I think the subculture side of me was coming out more when I was there in terms of, you know, whether trying to talk to the faith healers or just going after these in silver groups. But when I came back to New York, you know, I had the book. I now worked at two different places. I, I knew I wanted to go longer. I randomly picked up an assignment from a magazine called Fortune Small Business that was kind of the redheaded stepchild of Fortune magazine. Hmm. I, I never thought of myself as a business reporter. And there were no jobs. And I kind of got into the small business thing from the DIY side, which can make sense if you kind of look at the Burning Manny stuff. Like I was learning how to weld and do all this stuff. So they had me write about this big internal battle that was happening at Etsy. And they sent me to cover a maker fair and just looking at that kind of stuff. But then I ended up editing for them and I was doing a lot more small business stuff and realizing that almost anything could be covered under the rubric of small business, but also that there was a whole lot of Kool-Aid drinking going on and stuff that I thought was really disgusting. And I think my theory of that continued to flesh out even after the magazine tanked when I ended up doing a column called Start at the Times because I always kind of wanted to write the hacking capitalism stuff and they wanted me to write like how we can do payroll better. And do you know what I mean? It was like news you can use for entrepreneurs. I remember once getting assigned to write a story about a startup doing perky jerky which was caffeinated beef jerky and they were really used to getting kind of blowjob coverage because a lot of startup coverage was like that and I remember the guy was very proud of his caffeinated jerky telling me on the phone you know just don't talk to the USDA because it's actually illegal to caffeinate meat and I was like what kind of journalist, you, you know, if I wanted to be bought, like I'd be in an industry that's a little more stable than this one. Like, why did you just, you just gave me that. So I, I you know, I started working the fire. I went Watergate on Perky Jerky and turned out they were saying they were using Guarana for flavoring and it was caffeine and there was all this back and forth with the USDA. And at this point I realized this is like border collie in a small box behavior. Do you know what I mean? Like I was kind of chewing my arm off. Like you needed bigger targets? Or, or just <laughs> just something. I mean, the way I went after Perky Jerky, also because I thought it was legit, and I, I still do, but it was just a funny thing to end up investigating when really what's expected of you is a very small, hey, isn't this interesting sort of column? And I really just kind of wanted to like go in there and really look under the rocks mm-hmm. and see what caffeinated meat was doing under the rocks. So that was probably around the time that, I went out to cover Empire for the first time. What is the background of of how that assignment came about? And maybe for people who haven't read it, tell them what Empire is or was. Empire, for many decades, was a company town. It was wholly owned by U.S. gypsum. There was a gypsum mine several miles down the highway to the south. And we're in northwestern Nevada here. It's, It's high desert, not a lot growing, and then this big, gypsum mine with this white chalky gypsum ore that is used to make wallboard, drywall, essentially. It had been there for many generations. And when you lived in this place, it looked like something out of Norman Rockwell paintings. Like everything was provided by the company from utilities to housing. And it was bizarre. It was this little patch of green in the desert. People were very house proud. They watered their lawns and they worked in the factory or in the, down in the, the open mine. And in 2011, suddenly they got the news, I think it was right around Christmas, that the whole thing was shutting down. And that was related to the housing crash and the fact that 
drywall wasn't being used that much. There was a lot of drywall also coming in from overseas. And company town was an already outdated and expensive model. So just meeting all these people whose lives are about to be completely upended. They've been living in this 1950s time capsule in this very homogenous family, having everything they needed provided for. And then suddenly they're going out into the world where they need to find a new job, get their own phone service. Like basically it was almost a new adulthood. And I was fascinated by that. Did you find that story and pitch it? Yeah, I did. And I went out there at the time with a friend who was a photographer and he was shooting something else out there. He came and shot it. And then there was a whole mess. The New York Times Magazine really wanted it and they didn't want his photos and they wouldn't take the writing without the photos. And it got really complicated. And finally, it ended up running randomly in the Christian Science Monitor. Um, I had very little time and they were really good to me and to the story. And they actually had this print magazine. So after I did that, I wrote for them for a bit on the side. But that whole empire story got mulched into Nomadland, the book. And when the movie happened, I was giving them all my B-roll from company magazines of the town to like pictures of the town as a tent city when it started. I'd pretty much gone in and scanned the whole library archive of stuff for that town because I just knew the town was going to get wiped off the map. So then, as I understand it, that didn't naturally lead into the book. You did this Harper's piece first. So tell me a little bit about how looking at the actual nomads and camper force and that sort of thing came about. Well, the funny thing was I'd actually pitched the Empire story to Harper's. And while it did not get greenlit, James Marcus, who I went on to work with at Harper's, really, really liked it. We had coffee, nerded out talking about guitar pedals. <laughs> more than stories. But when I learned about Camper Force and kind of started tugging on that screen, he absolutely got it. So I actually love talking about where I got the story idea from because it's really boring. <laughs> but when I'm dealing with my students, I, I think it's just a great reminder that these stories are in reach and that we're so deluged with information. It's like looking at a conveyor belt with dusty objects that's constantly passing in front of you. And just seeing a shape that's interesting and picking it up and dusting it off and looking at it and then putting it back down. Because in my mind, I think for a long time when I was younger, I had to find the most obscure thing. I had to find something that had never been touched by human hands. And that's a great way to accidentally make yourself super marginal. <laughs> so I learned about Camper Force by reading Gabe McClellan's cover story in Mojo, Mother Jones. I think it was 2012, and uh, they went undercover. They went undercover at Amazon. Yeah, and there was a super short scene during you know the rigors of warehouse work where somebody was talking to Gabe and said, hey, yeah, I live in an RV full time, and I can't afford to retire, so I work here, and there is a whole program for people like us. And that was the moment where... You know, I, I was ready to set my hair on fire. I was like, wait, there's a whole program for people like us? What is that about? And, you know, it was a great article. I don't even know if I finished it at that point. I was so taken with that hmm. and started doing a subculture nerd out and just learning about this entire ecosystem of work camping, finding it's in this sweet spot for me of looking at the devastation wrought by certain economic choices we've made as a society and a subculture, this kind of non-blood family that's come together, often on account of adversity, sometimes on account of common passions, and just created this wandering family. Why do you think you're so interested in the non-blood family, the sort of like chosen family? I was really shy as a kid. I mean, my answer is probably boring. You know, I probably didn't present as exceptionally awkward, but I sure felt it. I felt like I was watching everything from the outside. I mean, that's in some ways probably a, a useful thing for a reporter or a temperament yeah. to bring to it. But I was just fascinated by people who somehow managed to transcend feeling like that and find their people. And I think that's one of the reasons it made it so meaningful for me. People who found a way to kind of create a micro world within the one we live in. And maybe there was something in the macro world that really just made it 
a very uncomfortable place for them to be. And they were able to find a way to create, you know, a smaller one within this one. And uh, this idea of hidden worlds has always fascinated me too. So just having an excuse to, to take a look. And when you, you started getting into that world, and you write about this a little bit in the book, how these seem like people who might be sort of naturally suspicious of a reporter coming in their midst. And what are your motivations? And I think Levon maybe at some point yeah. says, you know, are you going to write about us like a bunch of homeless vagabonds? Is that vagabonds. Goal? Yeah, the goal here? And how did you overcome that? What was your strategy for sort of convincing them that that wasn't you? Run away. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that sounds goofy, but well, something funny is that Lavon and I still talk all the time and we talk about that and she gets embarrassed when it comes up, but she earned it. So, <laughs> so yeah, Lavon was skeptical and apparently other people were more quietly skeptical as well, asking certain people why they were talking to me. Hmm. But I don't do a hard sell because it just the act of persuasion, it just feels... I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll tell people what my MO is, but I don't push people to talk with me because I also want to go deep with people. And it's not typically an adversarial thing. If I'm doing that kind of reporting, I want to be able to have the time to just sit with them and say start at the beginning. Because when you do a more open-ended interview, it can lead you to places that no matter how good your questions are, you wouldn't have thought of all the things you could ask about. So sometimes going chronologically will just take you to these places you wouldn't have, for me at least, that wouldn't have come up if I'd just done a very guided interview. So yeah, I, I hung out. I mean, that that's pretty much what I do is I'm not relentless. I don't wear people down in that way, but I stick around. I'm kind of a bit of a goofball temperament. And if people just want me to fuck off, I, I fuck off. Um <laughs> And I talk to other people and sometimes they want me to fuck off and then they get bored and they don't think I'm evil and they've seen me hanging out and then they talk to me. And that's what happened with my mom. A, f- a few days later, we were just chatting and she told me her whole story. Mm-hmm. I think she realized I didn't have fangs and was genuinely curious about her experience. But there's also this point where you've done a lot of reporting already. You've sort of been out there among them where you decide it's not enough and you buy the van. Mm -hmm. And a lot of reporters I think would be content with that first approach. So why did you decide that it wasn't immersive enough for you? A whole bunch of reasons really. The boring one is that my editor at Harper's who, he's the best magazine editor I've ever worked with, James Marcus. I wish he was still doing that. Uh, He's phenomenal. So he was having lunch with Elaine Mason, who's an editor at Norton, and she was instantly interested. Meanwhile, when I was out in the field, you know, just tenting out there for two weeks, kind of freezing my butt off, I had collected so much B-roll that I felt could be A-roll. And I had so many questions about where these people were going, what it was like to be out on a job site. I'd spent time with them mostly when they were hanging out in the desert between jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to see people going to Los Agadones, uh, Mexico, to get their teeth fixed, the Molar City with 400 dentists in a block or something like that. I wanted to see all of it, and I, I wanted to, to be there. So when Elaine took that interest, I ended up getting a new agent who I really like and really drilling down for a book proposal because I still wanted to do a formal proposal so it wouldn't be a shotgun wedding between me and Norton, and just to kind of lay on the table what we were going to be looking at. So once I got the book deal, I got the 95 Kemper van. Uh, a friend of mine picked it up for me. I found it on Craigslist. We got it looked at by a mechanic. Yeah, and, and then it began. People seem really disappointed I didn't do some kind of DIY van build out. But when I got the van, it was like I should have been on the road yesterday. So this thing weighs, it's 19 feet long. It weighs four times. I think half the weight is particle board. From these these heavy cabinets <laughs> and blue velour, <laughs> and we were off to the races. And there's so many amazing people that you're meeting, some of whom become characters in the book. But it seems like there would also be such a wealth of people with interesting backgrounds and how they ended up in this position and how they feel about it. 
did they come to the surface naturally like Linda May as the person you wanted to center around? Did you go down other roads where it turned out you didn't want to use them and they didn't end up in the book? Like, how did you yeah. center on these characters? Uh, absolutely. So the person I pitched Harper is based on, and he comes up a bit later in the book, absolutely freaked out. And I'd spent all this time with him in the Desert Rose RV Park in Nevada, and I was planning to catch up with him in Quartzade, Arizona. I probably spoke to 50 or 60 people who worked for Kemper Force. He was the only one, to my knowledge, that Amazon actually brought on full time. And he was finally paying off his debts and saving some money. And he said, oh, my God, if you write about me, I will get the ACS, the Amazon cold shoulder. And that's what they call it when you go to the door and your badge doesn't work anymore. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to screw this guy. I'm a human before I'm a journalist. And, you know, I'm on my first assignment for Harper's now. And I am in the desert with a tent trying to find people to write about. And I was definitely running scared. But then I met Linda. And the reason her story came to the fore is really a self-serving narrative reason. Linda had this dream that she was working towards and it was building something called an earthship. And a lot of the people I met, understandably, were very day-to-day -day and didn't have that thing that they were rowing towards. Uh, and Linda also drinks a lot of coffee. We both like dogs and she didn't throw me out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I stuck around. And in terms of, uh, she became the narrative spine for the story. But then I would take these side trips and it was based on people who had really interesting experiences that Linda May couldn't cover like the sugar beet harvest that Linda didn't participate in to explore other reasons people might be out on the road that didn't relate to Linda, other jobs she wasn't doing, bits of history, but hopefully use her as this, you know, this unifying tension engine that, that would bring us through the story. Mm -hmm. And the sugar beet harvest, that's one of two places where you go and, and work in the manner that they are, you know, taking these temporary jobs and the other ones at, at Amazon. And first, why did you decide that you, you felt like you needed to take that additional step to sort of put yourself in that position? Um, because I'm a masochist. No. <laughs> um, some of the journalists I admire most never show up in their writing. So for me, it was actually a big decision to do this. Like, often I feel like our job as narrative writers is to be like a stage tech and you wear all black and they might see you moving things around a little bit and they know you're there but you never wanted to be with me. In this case, I had interviewed so many people about the sugar beet harvest and Amazon. And there was also some pushback in terms of anybody who's complaining about these jobs is lazy. There was this very kind of American bootstrappy narrative going on at the same time. And while I preferred to follow my characters around like a lonely beagle, <laughs> I mean, when I could with Linda, I followed her all over this campground where she was working. She and Sylvie Ann would get in the golf cart to go do maintenance, and I would put my running shoes on and jog after them. And they made it a joke. They would say, micro litter, and point to the ground, and I would pick up the trash. <laughs> that's how we did it. Uh, and, and that's what I prefer. And, you know, you're not going to see me jogging behind her in a book. But in terms of Camper Force and the Sugar Beet Harvest, those are both closed work sites. So there was no way I could show up and watch and just get that kind of scene that wasn't mediated through another person. So that was why I did short work stops at both of those places and, you know, showed up there. I was also joking that I showed up to worry. Like I basically was trying to use myself as a foil that could do certain things and take the reader to certain places. I was wondering if you viewed those parts as kind of quote unquote undercover reporting and whether you had sort of rules around it. You mentioned in the book that you don't name anyone from when you were on those jobs by name. Yeah. But did you sort of establish rules for yourself? I did. And I like reverse engineering people who I admire quite a bit. And for me, I'm pretty obsessed with New Jack by Ted Conover. I thought the way he went undercover was really savvy. And I knew that what I was doing was going to be way less intense. I mean, he went undercover as a corrections officer for a year at Sing Sing. But he did talk about what I ended up calling a resume of omission because I hate feeling squirrely 
I don't want to lie to anybody. So I believe like that I had taught was on there, that I was a Starbucks barista was on there, which is mm-hmm. true. I was a damn good barista in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> a music store clerk that was on there too. And when I was actually working, you know, I could not be gregarious and I didn't say much. I was kind of like the, the silent J just watching. I had a small hip notebook. I had a very small camera in a key fob because I just attached the key to the van to it and I would wear it on my lanyard. So when I went out through security, I could just put it in a TSA style bin and then it would go through and I'd walk through. But I was terrified the first time I did that. I did not find undercover reporting sexy at all. Like some people are like, oh, you know, that's amazing. And I just remember feeling uncomfortable and ready for it to be over. I mean, also deeply fascinated, but I'm a golden retriever by temperament. I don't have a whole lot of guile. It's not uh, It's not my nature. I'm, I'm pretty upfront with people. So that part was hard. You obviously formed relationships. You mentioned being in touch with people still and talking to Levon. And what kind of distance did you need to write the book when you kind of got off the road? Yeah, I mean, now I call them friendships. At the time, I probably wouldn't have. But it's complicated. I, I did care for everybody. I never did any good writing on the road. Part of it, I, I realized later, my partner pointed out, was that I was not dressing for the cold well enough. So my brain was probably just completely numb when I was in the van at night. <laughs> so for me, you know, after being away for two months in the beginning, coming back was really, really weird. Just like waking up in a bedroom and having the ceiling be so far away and feeling like looking at my life almost as an outsider, like it was some kind of really boring TV show and just feeling kind of disembodied. But being, you know, kind of off the set of the reporting turned out to be really, really important. Just having some sort of critical distance. There are some people who assume I spent like three years at a time in a van and I never could have done it. I mean, I I could have done it, but not written about it. it. It makes me think back to Ted Conover when he told his wife he was going to apply to take the sergeant's exam. And she said, are you crazy? And he just, he'd gotten into it. I mean, even after like just a few days of working the sugar beet harvest, I felt really bad leaving because my crew, man, you know what I mean? Like you're there and you're doing it. So for me, actually just getting outside of it and being back in Brooklyn turned out to be really, really important. You mentioned that you're not continuously reporting. So you're not there for three years just living, Mm -mm. even though the reporting takes place over three years. And that's one thing that fascinated me about the book, which is that obviously the reporting takes place in these chunks. And then how did you go about structuring those chunks? Because it reads very fluidly, even though the timeline is not beginning to end. Thank you. That was really hard. (laughs) Well, the other thing worth noting is that when everybody was on Facebook, So that was one way I could kind of keep an eye on things when I was off the road. So I've never really lost touch completely. In terms of the structure, I thought about opening it where I opened the Harper's story. Uh, It's a very classic three-act thing to do in terms of we're starting with somebody in their darkest moment. It's kind of starting the hero's journey. It's starting us with this challenge or question. This woman is sitting in her trailer. Her power has been cut. What is she going to do? But that didn't really work to fire a whole book. And I talked to my editor, I talked to Elaine about it. And I ended up thinking, I want to drop in on the middle of some kind of action scene. And something that shows Linda in context, lets us learn about her. If I'm going to show up later, I have to at least give a blip of myself. So it's not like, oh, hey. Like, I have to acknowledge the relationship and show the scenes of the reporting a bit. And for me, Linda driving uphill and going to this crazy job and, you know, having her propane tank roll across the road right near an oil tanker and then Linda being completely nonplussed by it. uh, For me, that was really revealing of her character. If I'd spoken to her on the phone a day later, she never would have mentioned that. But for me, it was like watching this horror movie. <laughs> so, yeah, I decided to see if I could pull off the structure where you kind of start in media res in the middle of just this action. And then you go back and you work us through the timeline up to that spot. So then it goes back to when Linda starts on the road. And then it's pretty chronological. I mean, we have flashbacks about her childhood. 
and stuff like that. I, I didn't timeline it out that much. But then the field of play is pretty much Linda going out on the road. And it's really Linda's first year. Although it goes beyond that because I, I talk about expecting the book to end in one place and that it ends somewhere completely differently. So that was how I put it. I mean, she's obviously such a fascinating person and a fascinating person to center a book around. But it feels like the closer you get to her, the more you can understand her inner life, but also the more you might feel like that you owe her something in how you portray mm -hmm. her. And I'm wondering how you mm -hmm. kind of tried to separate your what seemed like budding friendship with her from trying to, you know, use her almost as a vehicle to tell this story. Absolutely. And, and that was important. Even even with a Harper story, opening up with the scene where she's contemplating suicide, and that scene ended up in the film pretty much verboten, yeah. was terrifying because I knew it was the best way to tell the story. I knew that it was on the record. It was fine. But and my obligation is to the readers, right? That is my primary obligation. And I have to remember that even when it's hard. My job is to really be the best storyteller I can and, and to be fair. And that doesn't always, you know, often that doesn't mean giving somebody uh, the version of themselves that if they were to write a press release saying, this is who I am, that's how they would do it. I think that's what Joan Didion is talking about when she's saying how writers are always selling someone out. It's the subtle difference between how a writer perceives somebody and that person perceives themselves quite often. So Linda didn't kill me for starting the story that way. I think she trusted me. One thing I tried to do was, you know, in the beginning I would record on smaller things and then I got this larger recorder and then I had it with a windscreen and then I had it on a tripod. They knew that I was there as a recorder. Again, setting up the rules ahead of time really helps because then you follow it. And I was really lucky in that I was with people who seemed to understand what I was trying to do and having the magazine story coming out first gave them a sense of how I write. And also with Linda, Linda is one of the least self-conscious people I've ever met. I used to tease her that the bigger the recorder got, the more confessional she became. And I really felt that way in that you know, she knew what was happening. So I felt... It's scary opening up somebody's life. It's a big responsibility. And I'd be lying to you if I told you I didn't have worries about it, but I kind of let myself have worries about it. You know, I told everybody what I was doing. I did the best I could. I was terrified when I sent the galley to Linda. You know, it was already in galleys. It wasn't like, you know, nobody gets to edit your book who's in your book. And I was thrilled that she liked it. But if she hadn't, it would have still been the book that I'd written. So then the book comes out, and I'm sure you and I both know many, many people have had their books optioned for film. Most of the time, it never happens. What was your sort of level of expectation around this situation? I kept myself on a steady diet of low expectations because, as Dale likes to say, the, th the Hollywood ship has threatened to dock. <laughs> so I, I took it with a pretty, like not even a grain of salt, maybe like a Salt like in the woods that 10 deer can feed off of for a year. I thought it was lovely when I learned that UTA was interested in repping it. I was actually out in LA when I took an interest in the van. So this poor agent got to watch me parallel park the 19 foot camper van coming out of LA traffic. That was really humiliating and a great way to start. And she really got the book and I liked her very much. It wasn't a lack of faith in her. It was just, you know, this isn't the most likely story for Hollywood, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I know Hollywood, we hope, has evolved somewhat, but it definitely doesn't have like those classic quadrants of like sex, drugs, wealth, youth, or, or just, you know, anything like that, really. So when I learned that Frances McDormand had taken an interest in it, I was thinking, okay, well, if anybody could pull this off, it would probably be her. Isn't this crazy? But I still didn't necessarily think it would happen. And we never did have that announcement. That seems like the better way to go is the no announcement this quietly is happening because it's usually yeah. big announcement this is absolutely not happening. Yeah. But as it moved towards production, what was your role? What did they want from you? So I was offered the role of consulting producer, but quickly learned that that can mean anything from you don't really do anything and you get like a vanity blip on the screen at the end to you can be useful. And like I said, I, I gather so much B-roll for everything and had all that stuff for Empire. And so I, I ended up essentially becoming a fixer. 
and a, a research supplier. When I first met Chloe, you know, I talked to people about the relationships between writers of source material and film and, and tried to bone up on it. And mm-hmm. knowing her previous work, knowing the writer in particular, you know, she's almost like an immersion filmmaker. And on some level for her to do it well, she's going to have to make it her own. And that's terrifying. That's totally terrifying, especially because the clay involves people I tend to care about quite a bit. But I figured I had to take a leap with it if I was going to do it. So when I met her, I said, you know, the way I look at this right now is I've been hoarding ingredients for like a decade now. Like I have this pantry that's full of like cans of stuff and vegetables and whatever. And I'm just going to open the doors and put all of it on the table. And you're the chef. And, you know, I don't know what you're going to cook. I'll bet it's going to be delicious based on meals you've made in the past. But, you know, I'll give you what I've got. And that's pretty much what I did, whether it was all the Empire stuff to sharing audio with her to basically introducing her to people like Linda. I remember when she asked me if I thought Linda would be good on camera and I explained to her why Linda was so great to cover. Just this sort of sense of she knows who she is. She's Mm -hmm. comfortable in her own skin and she's just not overawed or cowed by stuff. So great thing about Linda is whether I was talking to her, whether she was talking to her sister or a cashier or somebody in the campground, Linda was the same person. She never turned it on for me. And that was another reason I wanted to write about her. And I think that also made her good on film. So yeah, so, you know, I helped them recruit extras. I was on set for about a week. You know, it's not like I got to help write the script or anything like that. But, you know, I was there in that way. The film came out, which I saw... There were people who wrote that they felt that the film didn't go for the same structural critiques of the things like Amazon or just the economy in general, capitalism, that are laced into the book and that the film took a different approach. But I'm curious from your perspective, once you gave the ingredients and you didn't have the control, how did you feel about the way the material got steered in that direction or away from that direction? It's interesting because around when the film was coming out, I felt like all these critics who are interviewing me wanted me to hit the movie with a stick. Yeah. Like they they really wanted to start (laughs) something. They wanted me to be mad, say, ah, they sold it out or or, or something like that. And I could always see it coming. And (laughs) I, I just remember feeling like this is such a distraction. This is like the circular firing squad of the left. Like, let's argue about representations of Amazon in art instead of talking about Amazon. Do you know what I mean? And the injury rates and, and like the real stuff. Let's just argue about like whether Francis McDormand had a good day at work. <laughs> so I obviously have a lot of strong feelings. I, I also did a short film with this great director, Brett Story, called Camper Force. Uh, and when somebody is cutting a narrative path through a world you've explored and it's fiction... I didn't expect it to be investigative. I feel that fictional films and nonfiction books are different creatures. And what made me glad when I watched the film was just feeling that some of those moments in the van and the moments of the people together gave me such feelings of deja vu that my overwhelming feeling was they got it. Mm -hmm. Amazon was a blip in there. You know, I don't even know that they needed to include it at all, Hmm. frankly. Maybe that would have been a legit choice because, you know, once you kind of bring that elephant into the room, we're going to talk about it. Right. So yeah, obviously I have strong feelings about Amazon, but I also, I really, I like the movie and they did well by people I really did come to care about. So. Yeah. And some of those people were in the movie, which I would think helps on that front. Yeah, absolutely. It was in the beginning. I remember I had some FOMO when Linda May was out on the set in North Dakota and Linda May was secretly sending me pictures from like all of them hanging out at Wall Drag and like little fragments of like the scripts. And it's funny because in the book, there's a moment where I'm her Mars rover. She can't make it to the land she's bought, but I go out there with my laptop and show it to her. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I felt like she was my Mars rover. And there was something kind of poetic about it. You know, she's going out into this unknown territory and, and reporting back. And, and that was neat. Does it have any impact on your reporting at all? Being the like the set tech in the all black clothes, do you feel like, have you had experiences of going out and that 
surfacing, oh, this is the person behind the movie and then that having an influence? You know, I kind of worry about that, actually, because people think, oh, won't it be great? You're on Easy Street now. And no, I mean, everybody who does this kind of work knows you only feel like you're as good as whatever you're working on at the moment. And you don't really expect anything you've done to prop up anything you will do. So I, I think there might be a few people who were, oh, Nomadland, and were willing to talk to me and it would have been more difficult for them to do it otherwise. But recently it's been pretty normal when I'm out there, which is great. I'm pretty low key. So again, I, I hope it doesn't get in my way because I don't, I don't trade on certain kinds of credibility in my work for certain kinds of access like I just kind of go and do and so if anything I think I worried it would be an impediment and then part of it was like you know people are going to forget about this in 10 minutes and that's just fine so uh so far it's so good we'll see what happens and I know you've got some projects going that you can't talk about but I'm interested in a general sense part of what you've been doing in this book and some other pieces is sort of finding people's sort of inner struggles and really getting close enough to them to reveal those struggles. And I'm wondering if you continue to sort of like orient in that direction or if you have done so much of that and gone so deep in that direction that you're looking for new directions. I'm doing a bit of both, to be honest. I have a story coming out that is totally different. I have some stuff I'm working on that I hope will be more deep dive immersive. I'm consulting a little bit for film, which is just fun mm. because I love working with other people. You know, it doesn't have to have my name on it. I love doing strategy and brainstorming and just coming up with unique ways into a story or to get to people. So that's fun right now. I like playing on a team. And how much are you still that kid going on magical mystery tour in your camper van? Same kid, just sore muscles. <laughs> <laughs> Same kid. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for being interested. I'm, I'm a hugely nerdy fan, so it's, it's an honor. That's it for this week's episode. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Big thanks to Jess Bruder for taking the time to come on the show. If you haven't read No Man Land, it's never too late. Go pick it up. It's fantastic. Our editor this week is Gabriela Saldivia. Our intern is Julianne Sato-Parker. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our sponsor is MailChimp. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.